Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. Welcome to the Journeyman podcast. I'm Raoul Powell. The Journeyman is my journey to the nexus of understanding of crypto, macro, and technology. These are three mega trends that are coming together, and all of us need to really understand what this means for us, what the opportunities are, what the risks are. It's one of the most fascinating times in history. So I want to bring the best people as ever to pick their brains, to really go on that journey of understanding and take all of you with me. And today I've got one of my favorites. Juliette de Klerk is um, ex-hedge fund, ex-investment bank strategist, trader, and also writes very premium high-end research for institutions. And she's one of the people I go to when I want to navigate the kind of shorter time horizon of the three to six months of what's happening in the business cycle and what's happening with markets. So we're going to try to get Ju- Juliet to give us the understanding of where we are now, because there's a lot of debate whether we're going to see a crash in markets or this is the start of a new bull market. And there's a lot of nuance around it. I've got my own views. I'm pretty bullish. But I want to find out what Juliet thinks. Join me, Raoul Pal, as I go on a journey of discovery through the macro, crypto, and exponential age landscapes. In The Journeyman, I talk to the smartest people in the world so we can all become smarter together. Juliet, welcome back to Real Vision. Very, very um, happy to see you again. Yeah, it's always great. And I love picking your brains on where we are, what's going on. But before we kick off, as ever, I, I like to give people your background. So just give us the synopsis of your background and how you got to where you are today. So 2016, um, started um, GDR Research. Uh, so it's been, uh, what, seven years now. Um, I speak to mainly uh, institutional uh, clients. And I'm still here after seven years, which I think attests to like a good uh, track record with them um, in terms of like client recommendations, because as you know, uh, in this kind of business, you know, you, you're wrong for like a couple of months and, and, and you lose clients. So when, when people ask me for my track record, that's my track record. The fact that I don't, I still have, um, you know, clients from day one, uh, from 2016. And, bef- and before that, just to explain what you did in the industry as well, just so people get a framing of that. Before then, God, it feels like a long time ago, but I was at, uh, studied at JP Morgan in 99, uh, uh, where I did a mix of um, prop trading uh, and basically talking to clients uh, as a strategist uh, with a, a strong uh, global macro background. Uh, I also worked, um, you know, a few years at, at Morgan Stanley uh, before uh, I joined um, a hedge fund uh, a bit later before deciding that uh, it would be more fun to actually have um, many uh, investors to talk to uh, rather than a couple, um, you know, arrogant ones at the top. 
<laughs> yeah, I've gone through that whole investment bank, hedge fund journey, exactly. and then you don't writing, want to work for just which one is, person. No, it's also the quality of life you get as well. Because, you know, at, in the end, Juliet, the thing I love about, you know, what we do, what I do at Global Macro Investment, what you do, is we actually just get paid to think. And that's just a really lovely thing to do, right? I know. I mean, t talking about like quality of life, I've done a, a, a lot uh, this year towards adding more life. Uh, to my work and, and not just basically spending time still thinking about my crew on the beach. So I've added um, air surfing, which I think is amazing in terms of like emptying your, your mind and, and nourishing your soul. And uh, and the safari in Africa, I mean, like, you know, every morning I think about it and I just want to go back, um, you know. So, yeah, talking about quality of life, I think we are lucky. Yeah, I and mean, this is what we will do it. This is what we do it for, right? In the end... That's the goal. As I've always said that, it's like the the reason we do all of this and work so hard and everything else is for quality of life. Whatever that means, it's different things to different people, but it's that. If you lose sight of that, you lose sight of everything. A purpose, yeah. So, Juliet, before we dig in, I want to just frame things in time horizon terms so people know what we're talking about because, you know, one of the biggest forms of, of misunderstanding is always people's time horizons. So what's the time horizon that you tend to operate in? So I tend to operate on what's tradable, um, which is uh, in my case and with my framework, it tends to be one to two to three months. Um, but obviously I've got a view up to one year. Uh, beyond one year, I'll leave it to you because I absolutely have like no clue. So the whole, we've been doing this whole series on Real Vision, which is like, as you know, Last time I had you on, we had the same discussion and you were bullish and you kind of got that very right. Now the market is still split between we're in the bull cycle and it's ongoing with the usual ups and downs versus we're due another collapse because of recession. And it's like this really polarized world out there. So, you know, I, I know my own view, I tend to be more bullish and constructive. You know, again, accepting that we will have volatility en route. But I want to hear how you're thinking things through right now. Um, so it's it's a good time to pick my brain, uh, firstly, because I'm literally two days before uh, releasing uh, my new uh, monthly roadmap. Um, so, you know, probably will come out on Thursday. So maybe at the same time as, as the interview. Uh, that means I spent the last 10, 10 days basically uh, looking at uh, everything. And obviously, the question for me now that you know, last last time we spoke, uh, we were talking about you know the consensus was large majority to see like a early twenty twenty three recession. Uh, we now consensus is very much on the soft landing, but what I find is really interesting is that instead of recession being sort of recession view being uh, sort of um, cancelled, it's it's been delayed. So, you know, basically every six months recession when it didn't happen was delayed by another six months. And, and now if you talk to investors, I think probably consensus is divided between a recession in H1 next year and a recession in H2 uh, next year. But what very few uh, people are talking about, and which is what I'm considering uh, right now, uh, including in Europe, by the way, so I'm not just talking about the, the, the US, uh, is the fact that the recession or the slowdown has actually already happened and we're headed 
to um, reacceleration, reacceleration above potential growth, which obviously will have large consequences as well uh, for inflation, global inflation. I think what, what's happened this summer uh, is very much that the U.S. Uh, upswing was seen as like a you know like guarantee of of Goldilocks because the rest of the world uh, was still weak. So in other words, you have the strengths in in the U.S. and the weakness in China slash Europe, putting like a cap uh, on inflation, which sort of like guarantees you uh, Goldilocks. And what I'm thinking is that actually the U.S. is ahead uh, in 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 the cycle. And that you know the U.S. is picking up, the Europe will pick up uh, again, and actually 2024 is going to be completely different than anything that's priced in the markets right now. So I think potentially we are again at a really interesting uh, juncture because, like, uh, I think I was looking today, like one year, one year versus one year in the U.S. is about like 100 basis point, uh, meaning you know there's about like uh, four cuts priced uh, into next year. Uh, in Europe, uh, same thing. You know, we don't we don't know when um, uh, when the ECB uh, will reach the terminal rate, but you know there are already uh, two cuts uh, priced in the curve. So you know, if if you consider the fact that we might get uh, less macro volatility uh, in the in 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 the future, and we'll discuss why uh, um, in in one of your follow up questions, uh, I'm sure. There is a huge opportunity to basically pay uh, one year, one year, and and basically like um, you know enjoy the slide and and carry. So that's what I'm looking at at the moment. Obviously, there are risks uh, to this view, um, but um, I think that there's a strong potential for it to be like a big trade into the end of the year or in 2024. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again, March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. So how do you square with the fastest tightening cycle in all history and such a mild event? Now, my view is I think we actually slow down Q4 more significantly. We've seen some elements of that and inflation keeps falling and unemployment. But whether I'm right or wrong, who knows? But the point being is, why has it been so mild? I think... Um, considering so, the rate I mean, damage done. There are two ways uh, interest rates are hitting an economy. Uh, one of them is obviously the housing market. Uh, the other one, which is like kind of like delayed, um, is, uh, is, is the labor market. Uh, and I think you have to consider the fact not um, uh, the fact that there is um, a clear behavioral shift, uh, in my opinion. Uh, so I think you, you need to add a lot of psychoanalysis uh, in macro. I mean, as you know, 
uh, you know, you, you can't just rely on models and, you know, because behavioral um, uh, shifts are, are just as important. And, um, you know, it, one key point uh, that I see is basically the 12th of March uh, 2020 call by uh, French President Macron, uh, who said, uh, kind of like copied uh, Mr. Draghi by saying, uh, it will be whatever it costs. So that was like the Macron appeal uh, for whatever it costs. And, and and for me, that's like a key turning point in, in, in many ways. Obviously, it was dwarfed by uh, President Biden's uh, later uh, sort of like reaction function in terms of, um, you know, what happened in terms of uh, sorting out the crisis. But if you think about what happened uh, that year, basically, we decided that we'll pay, it will we will do whatever it costs to to basically guarantee the recession is a flash recession. And then it happened again in 2021 when, you know, Russia Russia declared um, uh, war on Ukraine. And again, we decided, you know what, we're going to throw as much money as it takes to basically guarantee that the energy crisis uh, in Europe will be fixed uh, in a few months. And if you look at what's happening um, in the PMIs and, and what's happened uh, basically this year in, in Europe and, and in the US, is you've had a collapse in uh, new orders. And you know new orders for us, uh, both is like a really strong uh, leading indicator. When you see new orders falling in, in manufacturing, normally you, you see it falling in, uh, you know, in the matter of months in services and, and it takes uh, labor down. If you're looking at the correlation uh, between new orders and employment, it's completely broken down. Um, you know, in Europe, in the US, uh, basically you've got new orders collapsing, but it's not driving anything anymore, which is kind of like um, telling you that companies have got the message that any sort of like recession is going to be so short-lived that it's not even worth firing people anymore. And that's obviously even more the case if you've got a, um, a record tight uh, labor market due to the aging of the population and, and the retirement of, of baby boomers. So you've, you've got two uh, things on the labor markets that are basically um, making that disconnect disconnection happen. And you can see it um, really clearly on charts. And, and it's even more interesting uh, in Europe where we've had a collapse, uh, for example, in manufacturing new orders. I think now we are in the high 30s uh, and, and, and employment there is barely, is barely contracting. So it's like at 49.8 or something after six months of uh, new orders being below 40. Same thing in, in services. Uh, DM services um, is is basically now uh, in terms of new orders has crossed uh, the contractionary line, but employment is still growing comfortably, and and it's not just uh, if you're looking actually at the diffusion index in in Europe, it's really interesting to see that it's actually picked up. So there's less countries over the last two months with a with employment um, you know crossing the 50 line. So. For me, it, it's it's really um, that basically is a reason why uh, monetary monetary policy is not translated as powerfully as it was before. In other words, you probably need much lower um, new orders for it to translate into a recession. So, like a much lower beta from um, you know activity to employment, which means that you get like mini cycle 
and potentially an extension uh, of the business cycle. So more like shallower intermediary cycles and, um, and a longer business cycle. Uh, now, we're also talking about housing, um, you know, and, and what's really interesting, and it's, it's the case in the US, um, it's also the case in Europe, is, is that we have absolutely record tight um, housing markets as well. And the problem is when you have like record tight housing markets and you have like a, a basically a shock in interest rates between like, a, you know, pretty much one percent. I mean, I don't know what your mortgage is, but mine is at 90 base point for 15 years and rates go like to five percent. The problem is you end up with like uh, exist existing house um, that are basically have a massive premium which is linked to the old mortgage that you have and that you're going to lose when you sell your house. So you're basically getting stuck with like exist existing uh, houses, which takes a good chunk uh, out uh, of the supply. Um, and, and obviously, like um, if you're looking at what's happening in the US, again, it's the same in, in Europe, is housing formation um, is basically at all time high if you take out the, uh, the COVID crisis. And, um, you know, and that's on the back of uh, aging population, higher divorce rate. Uh, and, you know, there's many reasons, but, you know, that's a fact. Uh, housing demand uh, is exploding. You basically have like supply um, uh, basically bent down um, because of the shock uh, in rates and, and that premium that cannot be realized uh, by selling your house. And you end up with like a situation where uh, the, the interest rate... Uh, the shock the in interest rate is actually um, not having so much of, a, of an impact on prices potentially just because of like supply demand and supply demand, you know, in an elas inelastic market um, makes it highly likely, uh, in my opinion, that houses, house prices are not going to correct uh, anywhere close to what many uh, believe um, uh, it will correct too. So I think in the US, we're actually reaching uh, to new highs already. And I think that will continue. And, the, and obviously the secondary effect is that all those buyers that can't buy, they're gonna turn to the rental market. And, and I think there's a lot of hope that shelter disinflation will replace headline disinflation into next year in terms of like basically capping uh, inflation and, and potentially it won't happen. Uh, sorry, that's a lot of information in, in so, look, question, Ben. Yeah, there's a lot of information there. So I'm also looking at new orders to new to inventories to new orders, and we can see that these things are rising now. So it's giving us a forward look that the cycle is turning. In, so in we're manufacturing, the, yeah. Somewhere around the low points in the cycle. So I think that's going to be interesting to see what it does. But the unemployment equation, to me, it still seems like it's normal. That from what I see from the leads lags it's just doing its normal lag but do you look at europe as well um i've not looked at europe as much as the us okay. on this it was with europe it's uh, you but, don't see it as much in the us because we haven't had the collapse in new orders um but it, it's 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 like a really um, um mind-blowing well, in europe yeah and this is what i wanted to raise with you is i was um writing global macro investor a couple of weeks ago whenever it was end of the month and I've been trying to think through the similarities with Japan and how unemployment never really rose again. So they kind of got to this 3.5% rate. 
Yes, they had there was a short period, and then it came back down to sub three and a half percent because of the aging population. So there's always demand for labour in the labour supply. Yeah, but wages don't go up because because wages have not gone up because of technology, um, a globalised labour force. I think there is a disinflation mindset as well in in Japan that is really entrenched, but. Uh, that you don't really see in Europe and, and the US. Yeah, and also I looked at it and think, okay, well, wage inflation's an issue if your labor force is big, because that's aggregate net demand going up. But if more and more people are going outside of the labor force, i.e. retiring, then I think it needs to be factored by that. So I think we're going to be going into a new transition and we don't know what it looks like yet. What is the natural level of unemployment or employment in an aging economy. I think it structurally will have changed. And maybe that's what you're picking up in Europe because Europe is structurally older than the United States, um, but younger than Japan. And we've seen yeah. this all the way through for the last 20 years. It's like, follow what Japan does, everyone will do the same later. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say is that retirees are the ones that have the money. So that even if they're retired, then they don't actually get constrained by you know, not earning anything anymore. They, they are the ones with the capital. Uh, so I think it's more likely that you will see like, um, uh, con uh, on that, I think you're gonna get like employment and nominal income growth, and you're gonna keep like getting the sort of like same consum consumption from retirees uh, because they are the ones with the capital. <laughs> see, I'm not sure about that. And I did a lot of this in, again in, in GMI this month is when I look at the consumption patterns of retirees, The median retiree does not have that much money. And so um, now, again, the US, US is different to Europe, is different to Australia because of the different pension systems, etc. But generally, the median person doesn't have much money. And there's a big factor, which is nobody knows how long they're going to live for. I mean, it's very hard to be a retiree in Spain because you live till 85 years old. Well, in the US, you live much younger, but you just don't know. So... I've tended to see that people become cautious of spending because the worst thing is to be 85 years old and having no money. Um, so I don't, I'm don't. i not entirely sure well, think that about the this is a... Of France, where you're basically getting your... You, you continue to get your salary, pretty much. You've, like, basically, um, um, you know, you're constrained uh, to, like, cotise and, uh, and, and you keep getting uh, your salary until you, you die, basically. So you're not really worried about um, when you're going to die. Hey everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners and then we'll be right back. No, that's right. In other systems, it's not all the same, right? So France got a very um, strong social welfare system that, that helps people in that situation, but it's not the same for most countries. So it just depends which country has what benefits. Exactly. And, and, and also uh, another thing is like you, you're talking about nominal um, income, income growth, which is, um, you know, obviously employment, um, employment growth plus um, wages and plus hours, uh, the, the, the change in, in hours worked. Um, if you're looking at where we are right now, uh, you know, in terms of, um, uh, for example, in the US with the last payroll on a three months um on a three months analyzed basis, we were still growing at like 7% uh, year on year. Uh, if you're looking on a year on year basis, we're still, we're still running at 6%. Uh, in my framework, 
uh, and looking at all leading indicators that I normally look at, we should have been like around 4% uh, by now. Uh, and, and that's actually the framework I use to also um, define whether we are uh, in restrictive rate uh, territory or not. Uh, so, you know, 5.5% interest rate with 6 uh, to 7% nominal income growth, for me, you know, rates are not restrictive. And so what is your outlook for inflation over this period between headline and core inflation? Again, you know, I think the market's very split in how this plays out. I'm very much that this is an ordinary cycle and it'll play out over time. Others are like, inflation is not going down. Others are a blend of the two. Where, where do you land in this whole equation? So, um, you know, you're absolutely right to um, start talking about, uh, you know, new orders to inventories uh, in manufacturing. For me, uh, the main reason for disinflation this year has been uh, headline disinflation. So goods and, and, you know, materials pretty much. And that is turning this month. And what's in, in terms of like base effects, negative base effects are turning into positive base effects uh, from now on. And that's happening, as you say, at a time where uh, new orders to, um, to, to inventories in the manufacturing PMIs are picking up, you know, quite sharply in, in some area, which is telling you that at the minimum, there's no more uh, disinflation uh, on the map. Uh, anymore for for goods and and materials. If you're looking at uh, oil, we're now like uh, up ten percent year on year. Uh, in fact, looking at global uh, manufacturing survey, um, you know prices are actually back to um, you know in, in inflation. Just this month, we 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 back to inflation. So for me, it's really the end of the sort of like easy. Uh, this inflation, which we've seen this year, mostly on the back of like lower goods and uh, and lower materials, and that will start to pick up again. And the problem is, um, you know, in inflation and is wages are basically fixing on uh, what's happening with uh, in the U.S. is is very linked to uh, to gas prices, uh, but generally, it, basically, wages are fixing on on what's happened on headline inflation uh, and what's um, inflation expectations for the next uh, year uh, in terms of like headline. And then that's picking up uh, again, uh, whichever survey you're looking at, um, you, you, you know, you can look at uh, Michigan, you can look at uh, conference board, uh, we're picking up. So the whole like global prices is basically already feeding through to higher inflation expectations. And those inflation expectations are likely to feed uh, into wages. Um, so so I'm, I'm a bit worried given wages is supposed to be the one thing that comes down uh, in terms of like uh, growth in the next six months, uh, if you want to continue capping uh, inflation, you basically need coal to, uh, to come down, um, given headline is probably going to start uh, going back up. And at the time where inflation expectations are picking up again and potentially uh, the cycle, the global cycle, Reaccelerates. Uh, I think it will be. I think inflation will be. You know, I'm not calling for like a second wave of inflation. You know, 1970s, 1970s style at all. Um, but I think inflation will be more problematic than currently assumed 
uh, by central banks because also because they are not at level of rates uh, that are restrictive yet. So I think they're all sort of like posing at a level that's not yet restrictive. So they're, they're sort of like posing, waiting for the past hikes to start feeding through uh, to lower demand. But the problem is when you're posing at levels that are not restrictive, I think it, you know, you're setting yourself for like uh, policy errors and, and that could be uh, what happens in, in 2020, end of 2023, 2024, e.g. Um, you know, inflation, disinflation gets disappointing. Um, so just frame it. You say not the 70s because that's another argument that goes around. If you're best guessing here and you say what inflation looks like in 2024, what does it look like? I think we get stuck. Like, uh, Are we talking it's sticky? Maybe around 4%. Uh, you know, we, we're sort of stuck there and it's difficult to get down and central banks lose, lose patience or start outing uh, their framework, which... To be honest, he's actually in, in existence, right? I mean, that's pretty much what Powell told us in, in Jackson, Jackson Hall is they have no fucking idea where the equilibrium rate is. So, yeah. So let's say that's the case. Then the cycle picks up, but but that kind of keeps interest rates where they are? Or do rates come down and then go back up again? How? What is the, so, what's the I path mean, of rates here? Let's talk 10 years for now or 10 years. So bonds, it, it very much depends on, on central banks. In in my opinion, if inflation um, if inflation uh, picks up again and there's like higher in, uh, uncertainty about inflation, I think term premia are way too low. Uh, historically, it's 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 really mind blowing how term premia how low term premia are, are, and the reason they are so low so low is because uh, markets keep delaying. Uh, the recession instead of actually like writing it, uh, uh, cancelling it altogether. So you, you always have like th this sort of like a discount uh, in rates because of the fact that everybody is expecting a, a, a recession. So I think if we sort of like realize actually we're getting we're getting into a new intermediary cycle, um, that and central banks are still kind of like. Uh, you know, on a pause, waiting for things to get worse. Uh, I think we can see higher term premia, so like a sort of like a bear steepening. Uh, you know, worst case scenario, I think, you know, rates stay here, curve steepens. Uh, you still make money paying one year, one year, because, you know, you're getting that massive uh, uh, slide and, and carry, and, and you're basically like rolling into higher rates. But I actually think there is a potential for uh, the terminal rates to be higher anyway, and for central banks to realize that in 2024, e.g., you know, like basically, uh, US go to goes to like 6.5 percent. Uh, you know, I would not rule that out. Let's assume that happens. How the hell do they refinance the 13 trillion of? debt that needs to get refinanced well that clearly fits and at with, those rates without issuing an endless cycle of new bonds that need to be issued at higher rates raising rate i don't understand how they can do this well i mean they'll have to do it and term premia will will increase and that's part of monetary policy right because in in the end really what you need for a recession to actually happen you actually need rates to actually get too high <laughs> you need a reason for rates to get too high and i think that reason is going to be the fact that you know fiscal um you know markets actually stopping being so complacent 
about where Temprovia should be, given uh, you know potential for like a, a you know ballooning in, in debt to GDP ratio. And I think where I see um, you know the most complacency in, is in UK, really. I mean, UK is just like really mind blowing. You still have wages like go at like a, going up at like seven point nine percent. It's not even like peaked yet. And they're actually trying to tell us that rates are like restrictive at 5.5%. And markets are like, well, yeah, you know what? I'll buy 10 year. Well, you know, it's it's not what's going to happen, especially given, you know, the next crisis. So I think you you sort of, the, the path to a recession is actually that kind of like spike in rates that makes markets be like, well, actually we can't keep issuing uh, at that level of rate and therefore uh, you know, I can't count uh, on government support, fiscal support uh, in the next crisis. And, and What causes the recession if it's not housing? Because everyone's locked in in their mortgages at low rates. New houses don't trade because of this issue that nobody wants to get financing because it's expensive. But what causes a recession in that framework then? You know, where where is the debt the problem outside of governments, which obviously they're all over 100% in debt? But what's it going to do? Just destroy the old economy names, the kind of AT and T's of this world, and the General Electrics who all have kind of big debts. I mean, where where does it get paid? Where does the piper get paid? Well, at the moment, um, to corporate, create that recession, corporate balance sheets are really healthy. I mean, that's what happened over the past crisis, right? Basically, corporate balance sheets have got have become extremely healthy. Uh, in in fact, you know, I talk to many corporates that are like uh, you know laughing, and they, they've got they, they've got positive uh, uh, treasury. And they're making five percent on it. I mean, it's just—it's like a, a, the boon and the and the the sort of like you're printing money and then you you're getting paid five percent on it. It's it's sort of like the gift that keep on giving. Um, same thing for like uh, private balance sheets are are, are very um, are extremely uh, clean as well. So at some point you have to get rates high enough um, that at at the minimum. You're thinking twice about borrowing, right? But if you're if you if rates are at five point five percent, you're going to get a seven point nine uh, increase in in your wage uh, in the next year. You know you should be borrowing. That that's just entirely rational. So you, you I guess the the answer is like. Uh, but who is so? I'm I'm trying to. Yeah, who are we trying to break here? Is it the household? Is it the corporate yeah, household? Where does the unemployment come from? So you want to break the households? Well, you have to break demand to That's, actually break employment. Yeah. The other way of doing it is raising taxes. Yeah, but I don't think that's happening. Nobody, nobody wants to do that anymore. No. Everybody's still talking about cutting taxes. That's right. So, okay. So we've we've kicked around a few ideas of what this might look like. What does it mean for... We talked about the bond market. So the bond market could be anchored around these levels, but could also be unanchored if they have to raise rates and other leg further some point in 2024. What does this mean for equities? Does it matter to equities because we've got enough growth? Or do we have to go through another up and down cycle? Like we priced in we priced in a recession last year in equities, and now we're coming through the other side. Do we have to do that all over again in the back end of 24? How are you thinking of that? I mean, my view is equities probably not the best risk reward here. I, I prefer to pay rates. Uh, to play that view, but to be really honest, I struggle. I think it's going to be really difficult to to get a decent dip to make it like an interesting risk reward to get back into equities. And I'm actually very tempted to go back uh, in again. 
uh, inequities, um, you know, as a recommendation uh, uh, in that report. Uh, the uh, the problem is you would like to buy cyclicals, and you know you probably would like to buy Europe, but you would like to buy it lower. <laughs> so you would sort of like get the you would like to get the the, the sort of like mini recession, Q3, Q4 printed get a little bit of, uh, um, you know, get me out of, of, of that trade. Um, you know, maybe like five, 10 percent dip would be really nice, but it's just not happening. And, you know, many are saying that we are in a recession in, in, in Europe. Um, you know, it would be good to see a, a, a bit of, um, you know, running to the door, uh, on that. And, and, and I would definitely use, uh, the opportunity to get long equities again. As you know, we use, a. Uh, a global liquidity index and that's been obviously liquidity has been tightening because of you know financial conditions have been tightening because of rates going up and the dollar going up um and for us the equities lag it a little bit and that suggests volatility still for a bit so we might get that 10 percent pullback before we go into year end but it's very difficult in the year the nasdaq's up 41 percent for any asset manager to go into the end of the year and not have they're all still underweight that's the crazy thing yeah that I they mean, have to kind of Europe window dress for year end year. if you were not long equities in january february uh, like we were recommending you you basically have made pretty much nothing in equities right the the trade was done in in february unless you're talking about nasdaq it's obviously like a, a lot of a ai story there and yeah yeah, I mean, the technology angles where I think the secular trend is, so I just err towards that one because it's easier once you've got a tailwind. Um, so I think that story's there. But obviously, if rates go up a lot, then the kind of forward discounting of some of these things makes it more complex. So it just feels like this is a, still a complicated sort of volatile world. You know, they, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, macro volatility of various things are there and, unless we get some easier resolution. That sounds like a complicated world for equities for me. How, how, how do we think through equities in this environment? I mean, it's absolutely true that um, equity risk premium are, are like ex ex excessively compressed. Uh, but in the world where real uh, equity premium yields are actually higher as well, it sort of makes sense. Uh, I mean, it, it just follows the right framework. Um, obviously, it makes it much more important to time your equity calls, right? Uh, you know, because you're missing the 5% uh, interest rate on, on your cash when equities are doing nothing. Um, which, which is why, you know, in a way, I'm actually quite um, happy with, with the call about like, you know, ending up uh, long equities uh, through February and, and, and then basically being uh, long cash with, you know, um, a recommendation in Nasdaq, which I've now closed because I think rates are going higher. Uh, in an ideal world, you would get the, uh, the the sort of like a rate shock uh, that you know get the Nasdaq down, and and that's what happened in in August. Unfortunately, it's come back faster than I expected. Um, you know, I don't know where we are now, but it would again that would be one of those things where it would be nice to get like a sort of like. 10, 15% and be like, you know what, I disagree with uh, 
markets, um, you know, looking for a recession in 2024. And I think equity risk premium can keep compressing and, and basically like, you know, get a good trade, good risk reward. Uh, but again, you know, it's it's just a bit like a, it's it's not great here. So um, yeah, equity wise, I would like to be both having Nasdaq and cyclicals. And I think, you know, obviously you're talking about much longer duration uh, asset uh, in the Nasdaq, which is why it made it so interesting to be long Nasdaq in um, you know when when everybody was looking for like lower rates, but um, yeah, less less attractive here. So at, at this point, I agree that. Uh, uh, yeah, equity, the equity call is is more difficult. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, my, because I'm a longer term time horizon. I you know, I bought last year the big sell off in the really growth end of tech, and then added a lot of tech at the beginning of this year, and that's worked. It's worked really well. Yeah. So I can sit on volatility and just wait and see how it plays out for a while. Um, I got bonds horribly wrong. It just they just yields just never went down, which I think is supply yeah. issuance issues. But you know, we we need to see what happens to the inflation story. The obviously the markets have been driven by liquidity over the last decade. It's been the one of the big drivers. Now, the liquidity. How do you see the liquidity cycle playing out here? Because if you're suggesting that inflation is going to be stickier, it sounds like central banks are going to be continuing to do QT, and that we will see less liquidity ongoing. Is that is that how you think of things? But again, it's like a sort of like a sequential thing. It's the same when you're looking at like uh, the credit crunch. Uh, you know, you, you need things to continue to like get worse. Uh, otherwise, it will get better. So the credit crunch, um, you know, consider the credit crunch. Uh, obviously, we have like a, um, um, uh, the, the credit impulse, which has collapsed to like minus six um, in, in the US, which is pretty much like similar level to what we had in in the great fi great financial crisis uh, but the problem is that it's sort of like missed uh, uh meets, meets the opportunity to trigger a recession because what will happen uh, going forward is actually standards uh, are likely to ease uh demand is likely to improve that's already something you, that you're seeing in Europe without even a recession uh being there so the credit crunch will actually ease going forward and it's the same with QT right You've got like a you know balance sheet that are like a, a slowly starting to to wind down, but if you don't actually make it worse, it gets better um, on a year-on-year -year basis. So you know you could argue that the credit crunch could get uh, it could basically completely dissipate uh, with the same level of rates, just because you know you need to look at everything in terms of like cycle and sequential basis, and and you know if things don't get worse, they actually tend to get better. Um, and, and I think that's what will happen with credit. Uh, and there's already signs of it happening. Um, if you're looking at, you, you were talking about financial conditions uh, before. Uh, the way I look at financial conditions is, is basically by looking at the um, uh, Goldman index versus the average of the last 12 months. And, and I find it's, um, it's a better fit as a leading indicator. Uh, if you put that on a chart with the um, uh, with the credit impulse in the in the US uh, with like a nine months uh, leading for financial conditions you can actually see that the credit crunch will turn like in, in the US is actually going to turn into um, you know becoming positive for growth again into 2024 so unless you get like a massive dump uh, in stocks which you know what will bring it 
then you know the credit is actually going to turn as um, positive again for growth uh, just on the back of the fact that it's not uh, worsening anymore. So I think it's the same with like a central bank liquidity. And you know, if you put it on a chart, it looks like we're bottoming already. Yeah, it makes sense. But it, you know, the forward-looking stuff to me, like to you, looks like the economy is going to strengthen. The question is, is whether we get any residual weakness in Q3, Q4 or not. Um, and then after nice. that, it'll be the stick. Yeah, and after that's the stickiness of inflation, which we have to find out. Again, we don't know yet, but we have to look at that and then assess the cards as we get dealt them. Because this is a very kind of fluid and different situation than we've seen generally. Um, now, the other big player in this game is obviously China, whose economy has been slow. Forward-looking indicators seem to be picking up. But do you think China has to stimulate? Because that is a, you know, that does generally help world liquidity. I mean, I think they should, but they won't. Um, you know, what's really interesting with China, which sort of like plays in, in the same uh, sort of narrative of like lower uh, microeconomic cycles uh, going forward, is that the credit impulse in China is basically, you know, going up a little bit, coming back down, going up. We used to have like perfect cycles before where they were like basically throwing uh, uh, all uh, tools in, uh, uh, in the kitchen sink. And, and now it's sort of like they're trying to deliver it. You, you can see it almost on the chart. What, what they're trying to do is basically they don't want the credit impulse to pick up, but they don't want it to collapse either, which is sort of like putting a bottom uh, on, on prices, putting a bottom on, on activity as well. Uh, then they have to do more if they want to uh, support employment. But I just don't think it's coming. So for me, it's more a kind of like, a, you know, China becomes a bit less important uh, for the global macro picture than it was before when it was like 40% of uh, global growth, uh, you know, because the, the, there is much less growth and, and much less volatility as well. Uh, in their cycle, China becomes less relevant. Um, that's that's the way I'm looking at things right now. And the, the final big daddy is the dollar. How does the dollar work? Of course, yeah work in this usually in a relatively expansionary economy the dollar weakens but it's been very strong because of rates and issuance and other stuff how, how do you see the dollar playing out i mean the, the way i was just looking at it and trying to make my my mind on it so what's interesting on the dollar is uh firstly that sentiment has um, made a full turnaround from 2012 so we had like a um lot of like a dollar week uh sentiment at the beginning of the year uh, on the back of like recession calls in the US and 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 obviously like on both sides of the of the small, uh, the dollar uh, strengthens and in the middle uh, it sort of goes down. So when you know global economy picked up, the dollar weakened. I think everybody sort of like jumped on the bandwagon. We've now gone full circle. Um, you know, there's actually very positive sentiment uh, on the dollar right now. Obviously, there's still the recession call, and we've had this uh, huge. Uh, Q3 like dollar exceptionalism where you know you, you've seen like the US pick up in terms of activity uh, and the rest of the world you know I mean I'm, I'm talking mostly uh, about Europe here but obviously China uh, is important as well uh, which has kept the, the dollar bid. Uh, now if you think we see another mini cycle and, and actually the dollar is not exceptional but it's actually just leading uh, uh, the cycles, which actually like the Barclays CEO was saying, you know, don't worry about the UK. Uh, UK will pick up again uh, on the back of like a stronger US. And I actually think that's true. 
uh, for for different reason, but for 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 the same reason, you know, labor uh, labor strengths, the the lack of connection between orders and and labor, so disconnect uh, in terms of like transmission mechanism. Um, so if you see, you know, Europe pick up in the next uh, sort of like six months, uh, if the U.S. is not as as exception as exceptional, and the global uh, cycle does pick up as well, that's telling me that the dollar can go down again. Um, so I'm actually quite tempted, given uh, you know sentiment that's turned you know quite uh, positive dollar. I'm actually I would be quite tempted actually to pick up some euros or sterling uh, at current levels and and look for like a a move uh, higher than than this year's high actually, which you know, probably would take us to like 114 uh, in euro dollar and above 130 in sterling. You know, the, 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 it's, the problem is the entry points. As you say, there is a, a potential for things to get worse uh, or to at least look worse and, um, and for the dollar to, to go stronger into the, into the end of the year. So it's a matter of timing, but I would be quite tempted to uh, look for a weaker, weaker dollar from here. So if we go back to the kind of fundamental premise of of the conversation is like what is the risk of let's say in your tradable time horizon let's call it three to six months but that three month window let's say what is the probability of a sell-off larger than 10 percent in equities versus what is the probability of a larger rise how are you thinking of the risk reward here i think for um so what, what do you need for a 10 percent uh, drop in equities uh, 10, 15 percent. Let's say you need a you need a recession. Um, for a recession, you need the labor market the labor market to break. So you basically need me to be wrong uh, on the fact that um, new orders is no longer uh, leading uh, employment, uh, or you know like a bigger dump uh, in new orders that finally sort of like breaks the camel's back. Uh, but for me, it's really all a labor, uh, a labor problem, and obviously, like we all income as well. If you get, if you get another oil shock or, um, you know, like another material uh, shock, obviously, like straight away you will kill uh, real income gains, and 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 that could push a, a recession, no question. Um, but in terms of like without having a sort of like exogenous force hitting our framework, I think what you need is basically the labor market to break. Um, and and for wages to get uh, for wage growth to get a lot lower, uh, so for me that's the really the main thing. Uh, and obviously, you know, looking at claims, looking at uh, uh, sentiment uh, on jobs, which is extremely strong wherever you look at. But again, for me, the 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 the, the one thing that's that's really mind blowing is what's happening in Europe, uh, where supposedly we're in recession and employment is still rising. And you know wages are still rising, and and you know no one cares about the recession. Amazing. Okay, well look, let's wait and see how this all plays out. It's a, it is very complicated, and I can understand why people are so bifurcated in all of this. And I think we'll have a much better understanding of at least the next six months ahead. Once we get through the next two or three months, you know, if we see labor market weakness, if we see you know, some of the stickier elements of core inflation coming down, then we've got a slightly different story. But we have to see. We just don't have that information at hand yet. So I think the it's going to be is you, very you, interesting. As you know, once we see it, once we see it, it's no longer tradable. 
So we have to That's have right. a really good guess and, and get the risk reward right. Um, you know, and, and then we'll be able to say, you know, I told you so, but I'm not able to be to show you what will happen. I can tell you what, where the risk uh, reward lies though. And and for me, I think it's in the twenty twenty four that looks different than um you know what what consensus is talking about. What's weird for me is all of the forward-looking stuff that I look at at GMI suggests that liquidity keeps rising. And it seems incongruous right now. It's like, well, why is that when the, you know, some of these Atlanta Fed now casts at ridiculous numbers? I'm like, I don't know, but a lot of my forward-looking stuff suggests that something changes in Q4 that has not happened. So I'm just kind of waiting to see whether that turns out right or not or whether there's another red herring in that. I think you will be right. And and I've got many charts actually in my um uh in in my in this week's report that shows why Atlanta Fed is actually right as well. Uh there are some indicators when when you look at components that actually matter. So if you you're talking about Michigan, what weighs down Michigan is basically prices and interest rates, right? But when it comes to like making a, a purchasing, um, a purchase, like buying anything, in the end, what really matters, I mean, you might be pissed off because prices are high and interest rates are high, but in the end, what really matters for uh, determining like economic purchases is economic conditions. And economic conditions are basically defined by jobs. So if you're only looking at the Michigan uh, kind of like economic conditions and willingness to purchase um, according to uh, um, economic conditions, you actually get like 3.5 percent increase uh, increase in Q3 uh, in 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 final demand, which is exactly what Atlanta is is looking for. So I think there's a lot of like basically garbage sort of like uh, indicators that used to make a lot of sense that are not actually driving anything. Uh, you know, higher interest rates don't matter. I mean, yeah, you are pissed off because you're used to interest rates at zero and now they're at five. It's annoying. <laughs> but if you've got a job and, and your your your, um, uh, your wage is going up 7%, you'll get on with it. And you might still mourn, but you'll buy. And and I think that's really what's happening. And, and that's why we're going to see uh, continued improvement in sentiment. Okay, final question. It's a general question. Is if you were to give one tip to an investor in how to be better at what they do what would be Juliet's tip uh hire me <laughs> that's the easy, the well, easy answer some it? of these might be retail <laughs> if they're institutional investors they can obviously subscribe to your research but if it's if it's just the average person trying You're to figure his uh, way out yeah retail relatively you know relatively sophisticated the kind of real vision crowd what should they think of is the one thing, if you say, I'm going to give you one hack that's really going to help you, what would it be? I mean, the one thing that's um, always that I see like uh, many like banging themselves uh, their head on the wall uh, because is is consensus, uh, really uh, trying to find uh, a, a trade that makes sense and that is not consensus so that your risk reward actually makes sense. Uh, what I, What we see is a lot of like traders, they think, you know, they're, they're told something and they see it in like uh, everywhere on Twitter. So therefore, they think it's like the trade of the year. Unfortunately, when everybody's talking at it, about it on Twitter, uh, it's, it's probably a really bad trade. Uh, so it's really making their own decisions uh, is one thing. So use the framework that we're talking about. 
use your own um, your own framework, your own views, and try to really focus on risk reward and and not follow the crowd, basically. Perfect, Juliet. Thank you as ever. Fabulous conversation, and let's see how it all pans out over the next few months. Interesting times. So while this conversation with Juliet forms part of my journey of understanding the journeyman, it's also part of something we're doing on Real Vision, which is this kind of idea is, are we going to have a boom or a bust and how to profit from what's coming? And the world is really split. And Juliet and I talked about this a lot. And I think it's really important to understand those viewpoints. And we've got many more people coming on Real Vision, incredible thinkers, some of the world's best analysts and strategists from David Rosenberg to... Cuppy to Tracy Shuchart and Oil to, I mean, you name it, they're all coming to help us think through this problem. And it's there for you as a resource to go and understand how this all links together, the differences of views, because Real Vision wants different views, like Juliet's views are different to mine. And I like that. This is how we test our ideas and our frameworks and look for out of consensus ideas. So lots coming on Real Vision to continue this conversation but for me, what I got out of Juliet's conversation is it's going to be potentially a complicated 2024, where the economy's growing, but rates don't come down. We don't get the same kind of cycle. Maybe we don't get the central bank liquidity that I've been waiting for, the more cowboy idea. Maybe it's something entirely different. So we have to wait and see. This kind of uncertainty is what we've been living with for a while now. And again, as ever, the markets will point us the way. Good luck out there. And... Listen to Juliet's tip about that consensus. I will make sure I get tips from many people as I go through this journey because I want to give you that kind of idea that knowledge times tools times network equals your success. And these kind of things should help you build your knowledge, tools, and network. Thanks for joining me. See you next week. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.